Amazing Thinkers, a podcast about leadership in the humanities, humanities and leadership, and how studying the humanities affects leadership practices. Our host is John Esposito, Classics PhD and co-founder of Calion, a nonprofit dedicated to elevating leadership through the humanities. Welcome, everyone, to the Leading Thinkers podcast. Our guest today is John Zarecki, who is actually somebody I know as a colleague from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro in the Classical Studies Department. But let me ask you, John, to introduce yourself. Sure. Thank you, John, for the opportunity to, to be involved in this. And thank you to everybody from Calion for, for the invitation. I'm Jonathan Zarecki. I'm an Associate Professor of Classical Studies at UNC Greensboro. And my special area is the late Roman Republic into the Roman Empire, the regime change from Republic to Empire, with particular focus on Cicero and his concept of the state, concept of leadership, and the De Republica on the Commonwealth, his, his treatise on the ideal constitution. So that's my area, main areas of research, of course, dabbling in other things, but. I just want to also note for the sake of the audience that John is not just the kind of scholar who stays indoors, reads books. He also actually fights as a Roman warrior, right? So he's one of these get up in there and, and do things in armor. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. Unfortunately, COVID's put a big dent in that, but uh, going out and, and reenacting the first century as much as possible is definitely a special hobby and a perk of, of studying the ancient world. So. Right. And one of the things that we are thinking when we kind of Kelly, and one of the things we always like to push is that scholars of any time period are the knowledge about a subject matter, such as leadership or war or whatever, benefits in both directions. The scholar who studies it can learn from the people who do it, and the people who do it can learn from the scholars who study it. So in our approach to elevating leadership through the humanities, we also have an approach, our, our desire is also to elevate humanities through working with people who are in leadership positions. So I will ask you some questions about your own experience in academic leadership as well as your, sure. uh, your scholarly work, if that's all right. Sure. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Cool. And I would uh, definitely second that idea of, of learning from the two-way street of, of, of learning is that, you know, I'm, I do this professionally. I'm a professional classicist, but going out and being among people who've been reenacting for 20 years who have such a depth of knowledge of, of the ancient world that I could never have had simply because they've been out doing it and learning how to present it has certainly changed my, my ability to teach the things about the first century that we do when we go out and react. Yeah, my limited experience with Society for Creative Anachronism, I guess, mm -hmm. is that when you get into the really, really nerdy technical details, you end up biting off through a little slice, a very large chunk indirectly. And yes. it's a very large chunk, the like workings of which are something that you wouldn't get through, I think, well, let's say like standard kind of studies of humanities mm -hmm. in the world, which still, despite French traditions, despite modern like English attempts to change this, American attempts to change this, still is very much focused on the big, powerful, important people, which right. is different from how things actually work. But in the case of military studies, I'm assuming, I think you're talking about this in the case of reenactment, even the big, powerful, important history, like military history is something that you actually come to understand better by on the ground doing it a little bit. Yeah, you, I would absolutely agree. Yeah. The little people are the ones who actually made everything work, right? You need the people to execute the grand plans of the big, the big thinkers. And I am, but a lowly level soldier. I am, I am a, a private in the Roman army when we do this, but you do very quickly fall into this idea of, I don't agree with what we're doing. Why are we doing this? Starting that just even, even for the one day events, why are we doing what we're doing? This is, I could do this better. Could I do this better? And if I could, how do I get there? So <laughs> your infection. Exactly. Start a little faction of one and see if you can convince somebody else to join. And, and Like so, Martin Luther. Yeah. Yes. There you go. <laughs> um, so uh, this is a good transition to um, one of the things we're talking about, which is about big and little people. And this is something that in the speech that you've said to focus on today, the uh, Prosistio of Cicero, something that mm -hmm. he worries about. It's also something that, of course, was a major concern in the discussions of how to engineer society and the founding of the American Constitution. It's mm -hmm. a subject matter that is of great worry for Romans, even more than for Greeks, although the Greek elite intellectuals also worry about it. They just don't end up implementing it in the same way that Romans do. And it's obviously a, a particularly salient problem today when we talk about, for example, 
global populist movements across societies that have differently engineered uh, governmental structures, leadership structures, America versus, for example, versus a more technocratic Europe, or let's say a technocratic, but also more democratic Europe, it's hard mm -hmm. to say. And the question of what the difference is does depend on how those factions form, I think, partly, what mm -hmm. the system and what the scale of those factions is. Scale is one of the issues that comes up in these conversations. And how, how the, the smart people who know a lot but are few should relate to the dumb people who know nothing but are many, or maybe they actually know better than all of us put together. Right. Right? So this is something that as a teacher as well, you have to worry about like how much are your supposedly ignorant students actually teaching you? I know when I teach, I end up feeling like I learned a lot more from my students than I taught them, even though in the narrow specific area that they actually are paying me to teach, I learned from them, I mean, they learned from me, but overall sure. I learned a lot more from them. So how does that work when you're making decisions for all of a society? I mean, this is this is the I think the number one issue that's that Cicero is facing down in the 50s and 40s, particularly is this idea of the the quote unquote optimists, the best people. Do they actually know better or is it simply that they have practical knowledge of how to implement things that are good for the state? One of the things that that Cicero comments on kind of snarkily in the Processio is this idea that decisions are made by those who show up. That's not great. But if that's what you have, you have to deal with it. And I, you know, re, it, looking at Federalist 10, where he's talking about this idea of the size of a republic, right? You have to have it. You have to make it big enough that you can't have a fat, uh, domination by the few. You can't have the oligarchy, but also not too big that the masses can just force their will on people. And so the, I think the way Cicero looks at, it, of course, the Romans don't have factions. They don't have political parties like we do, obviously. But this idea that whatever the good people are, those that honestly. <laughs> hold uphold what we would call the preamble of the constitution right the public wheel whatever that is and it could change cicero being kind of pathologically attached to the status quo as he was but the status quo can change and it does significantly over the course of the last you know 30 or 40 years of the roman republic boy that's a really good point so what you you sort of tacitly identify the common will with the constitution or with the republic mm -hmm. itself are those the same or do those come apart? And I guess it, it, you might argue, one mm -hmm. might argue that whether they come apart and how much they come apart might determine how much you care about separation of powers, which is something that Romans don't have really exactly. They try right. to develop this and push this, but in the time Cicero was talking about, that's weaker than it used to be even, right? The optimates of the optimates, or at least he's trying to maybe push this idea that the people in charge are the powerful ones. Mm -hmm. So is the common will the same as the Republic or is the Republic the same as the system or? Maybe so that's especially which is where it all falls apart right yeah phil, sort of philosophically cicero kind of identify and he does this in dairy publica not so much in the process is this idea that that the raised public is the you know the raised public or raised populi the, the republic is the things that matter to the people whatever matters to the people that's your state despite the sort of disenfranchisement and the relatively little power that the people have in the republic it's what the people, the people actually have the only power of law. They only, they have the power to elect the magistrates, to approve the magistrates. So they do have a big say in, in their representatives, but they're kind of lifetime appointments. You know, the Senate is, <laughs> you're in for good. We talk about term limits now for, for good reason, because you don't want 70 year senators. Julius Caesar, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I could dictate, I mean, this is the fear of the dictatorship, right? Is that you've got, what if he's a bad dictator? The Polybian, you know, Annika Closis, like kings are fine but they're inevitably going to go bad. And then you have to get rid of them and go through violent upheaval. So but, there's no idea of divine kingship whatsoever, in other words, right? This is a point that is by great contrast with some earlier, larger Near societies. Yeah, I think kings kings were chosen by the people. Even the seven kings and the Olivia is very clear that the people choose the kings. And where it goes south is, is, of course, when the kings start viewing the kingship as a right, some kind of inheritance 
part of their inheritance. That's when it goes south. If the people are electing the king, that's totally cool. But yeah, it's not divine. It's, and it's very human. But this, uh, this problem, I guess, right? This is very much conscious in Roman's mind all the time in their own self-construction. They have this idea that there was this previous period when these kings did get above their britches, right? They were superbus, mm -hmm. let's say, and they're somehow yeah. above taking care of the people or treating people well. And then it's in their identity to say, no, 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 we, Brutus, let's say, we made that not happen. And so we're the ones fully responsible for the bishop. That's in the public consciousness, even in the first century, yes. Certainly among the people that are actually running the state, yeah. I think it's a it's a great question I don't have an answer to is like how much the average Roman would have known about Rome's history. Yeah. <laughs> uh, would, yeah. would, okay, we once had kings, would they know the names? Are they taught them in school? What were they taught? You know, everybody knows Washington, right? You're taught about George Washington because of all the things he didn't do, the cherry tree and whatever else. But how many of how many of us ever got to pass, say, Jefferson in the presidents, the list of presidents of what they did? Right. We, we kind of don't get that dark period of, of Jackson and, you know, or even Andrew Johnson, you know, he gets kind of shoved aside despite his horrificness. So we don't really get a lot of that either. But for the people, yeah, the people who are running the show, the, the Cicero's, the Brutus's, the Cato's, the Caesar's, they're, I think, definitely highly aware of the precedent that is weighing on them for, for not reaching too far. And I think that's where Caesar becomes unique and scary is he did say, you know what? Here's the line. Uh, what happens if I go over it? And become God. And become God. And it worked. I mean, it was a huge gamble, right? Invading, crossing the Rubicon was such a gamble. It was kind of a failure of policy, of political policy of, of Caesar's idea. It was a gamble and it just, it worked. <laughs> right. In <laughs> some sense. Two yeah. Legions. yeah, let's send yeah. two legions and hope Pompey actually is incompetent. Conversation in the future too about like where that ends up in the so-called empire, right? And how Augustus tries to navigate these problems. Mm -hmm. I think since you're identified as a sort of Cicero scholar, I think your sympathy probably lies with not doing that, but with a person who's in a leadership position, who's trying to stay within something or other within the Res Publica. Yeah, I think, and that's, I think when, and this is something I've started to look at, it's kind of this idea of, of transactional or transformational leadership in, in the Republic. And so I think Cicero is definitely that when crises come, We've got to make transactional decisions like, okay, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. Yeah, we might give you an office, Octavian, that is totally out of your pay grade, but it's going to rectify this crisis. We're going to kill anything, we're getting rid of it. And everything's just going to go back into game board resets to preserve what we had. Everybody's playing under the same rules. And when the person breaks the rule, you kind of gang up on them and reset the playing board. So definitely thinking about, how do I want to put this? So where leadership comes in, right? Leadership, I think, to Cicero is to preserve the status quo. You might have to do something completely illegal or anti-status quo in order to maintain the status quo. But at the end of the day, if you can bring everything back to the level, you you are a leader. Right. And, not every romantic is a communist. Sometimes romantics are profoundly conservative as well, right? Because mm -hmm. in order to heroically achieve what is truly perfect and preserved, you have to yourself take on the burden of doing something dangerous and sketchy in order to make sure that things remain safe for everybody else. Right. Is that, uh, now, if I'm, I'm trying to stereotype this a little because that is a little bit elitist sounding, right? So maybe to an American. Sure. It also um, gets to something that I thought sounded like the danger that arose before, which is as the people who are conscious of what we are as Romans or what it is best for the res publica, mm -hmm. there is maybe some tendency to think, you know, we optimates or we old people, we senators somehow should ignore the will of the like stupid mob. And Cicero talks about this and worries about this. And of course, in the first century, after, after well, anytime after the Greci, this is a problem. You're like, well, is the status quo what the people want? 
or is it some knowledge that mm -hmm. we people have of Rome as it ought to be or as it was or something like that? Oof. How does Cicero yeah. address this? And this is also a problem for Madison as well, of course. Yeah, this, the people have, well, in, in, in De Republica, Cicero also says that what the way to a successful maintenance of the state is to give the people just enough liberty to think they have power in the state, in the running of the state. We're going to handle it, right? We're, we've got it under control, but give the people just enough that they don't know that they don't have any power. So this is actually fairly cynical. He... Oh, it's incredibly cynical towards the people. And while he's saying you know, the Republic is what matters to the people, you can't give the people any real power because they're dumb in groups. In large groups of people can't make informed decisions. So is he talking about people in the city of Rome, i.e. people who form a mob, or is he talking about people throughout the provinces? Because those might be different. Yeah, yeah well, he, I think he is actually talking about just the people in Rome because functionally those are the only people who can vote because you can't... The, yes, every citizen could vote, right? But you've got to go in person to do it. And that's another uh, thing about the Roman state, right? That unlike any other Mediterranean or even Near Eastern civilization, they had a much, much higher concentration of population and a political power in this one little place, right. a swampy little place in between hills and stuff that <laughs> people get sick in. And, and, and yet that is determinative, like the physical structure of the commission ends up becoming determinative of matters that affect, you know, Iberia, right? Right. Yeah, and it's, I mean, Rome is... And I think this is one of the big failings of the Republic, right? Is that it's based on kind of this polis model of the city-state, but it's not. It's nowhere near a city-state, and it hasn't been for centuries. And they're still trying to run it as if it was a city-state instead of... Now, I can't imagine there's a way to do voting from the provinces, right? They could do mail-in ballots from, you know, Gaul or something like that. But yeah, they're, they're definitely have outgrown their model. And Cicero is, is very much aware. Um, and again, Cicero is kind of what we have, right? We have more Cicero than anything else. Aware that the people, sometimes you vote by tribes, for example, you make it five people from your tribe to show up. But that still counts as the tribe's vote. And, and of course, that's a modern problem, right? With this, with the electoral college. Voting, the electoral college, right? Yeah. It's almost as if you have, it's, it's almost as a proto, kind of a proto- electoral college that by virtue of the system you've set up, you are okay with this small number of people electing your people. Right. Now this idea is explicitly discussed, right? As this idea of hierarchy and of like hiding the masses opinions through layers of representation is something that the, the Federalist Papers go on quite a bit about, about saying like, yeah, when, yeah, yeah. when you scale, you can't have direct voting. They seem to agree with Cicero here. But they go a little bit, uh, the Federal 10 that you told me to read, that goes a little subtler about how the numbers actually work. So for Cicero, there's like the mob, and the mm -hmm. mob is big enough in the city of Rome to be stupid, let alone in all right. provinces, right? But the exact numbers of what that scale of people who have opinions and who have liberty are mm -hmm. is something at issue in the formation of the United States that the Federalist Papers worry about. Right. So it feels like they're, they're taking that problem a bit more seriously than Cicero. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I, and... and... I mean, the, the the last century of the Republic kind of, you know, the, the nails being every year instead of being driven into the Temple of Saturn are being driven into the coffin of the Republic. Every new year brings some kind of chipping away at the system. And Harriet Flowers got that great book about, you can't talk about the Roman Republic, you have to talk about X number of different republics because it periodically just reinvents itself as a new type of government. But Cicero, yeah, he, he recognizes that the people are mob but seems to be completely okay with the fact that low voter turnout is going to ensure the perpetuity of the current system. Because it um, increases stability. 
Yeah, it, yeah, it's a comp- you can count ex- you can count on what happens every year. And when the open, when the secret ballot was proposed, forgive me for not having the details of who proposed it. When the when the secret ballot was proposed, the the people in power said that's you can't do that because that's going to erode our power because now you get people who can vote for whoever they want. So the people we tell them to vote for, that was a huge a huge threat to the to the existing power structures on this idea of a secret ballot. Uh, right. Right, and that, that is even a similar point about whether there should be representation at all versus uh, direct voting. And, and you might draw a somewhat analogy between that, and I think it's the 17th Amendment. I forget, it's the one that says that senators should be elected but directly mm. rather than. Right, instead of by the state senate, state, yeah, uh, state legislature of some kind. Yeah, which is, again, a little bit of a pro democratic move and an anti hierarchical, anti republican sort mm-hmm. of move. I, I should know that amendment number. So, I mean, <laughs> so should I? <laughs> some amendment. It's on the Bill of Rights, so it's not that important. That's right. So it, it seems, and you know a lot more about this than I do, but it seems that he doesn't typically worry about how to make the right decision. He kind of trusts that if you're a decent enough person, if you've studied enough Stoic philosophy or whatever, then mm-hmm. you're probably capable of making the right decision, or at least that nobody should be, that we shouldn't be trying to harvest the intelligence of the masses in some way. Correct. Yeah. There's, there's no, no need for them. Yeah. Right. And even the way the structure is set up is that there's no debate ever among the people. They can vote thumbs up, thumbs down on what's presented to them. That's it. Right. So, right. and if they can, okay, we can vote, but there's never, you know, send it back to the people. Let's tweak the wording on the bill. Well, it got defeated. Okay, well, we'll tweak it and send it back. Just get the but, thumbs up, yeah, approval. We don't actually, they're not going to contribute. Yeah. Yeah. And if, and all you need is a majority. And of course, they've stacked it so the rich, you know, the, the, by the centuries that the richest people make up the top, you know, 80 centuries. So you don't even have probably two thirds or three quarters of the people ever getting to actually vote on anything. So the rich actually vote on the laws. Yeah, definitely don't consult the people because they're not going to know. They can't be trusted to make decisions for their own good, let alone the good of the state, right? This idea of, you know, Cicero is all about this, this, the otium, you know, otium cum dignitate, right? Sort of freedom from oppression with, with self-worth, I guess. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. That famous like definition. It, it's in the process, you know. Of mm-hmm. like what leadership or ideal leadership is—is is that fair to say? Or I—I I, I think you can kind of summarize Cicero's the the end goal of leadership, right? Is to is to give this right in theory to all the people, but at least for in kind of a big picture status. And you think again the preamble, right? To life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, promote the common welfare. You've got this whole sorts of stuff. That seems to be the end goal of what Cicero thinks a leader should be. How you get there is fuzzy. Right. Well, let's dive into exactly what those, because all those words here in cum dignitate otium, those have sort of false friends in English. And of course, they're hard to translate even in Latin. And I, my primarily Hellenist, but the meaning seemed to change quite a bit over time. And they even seem to be significantly changed by Christianity. So mm-hmm. maybe, so the, the phrase that Cicero uses as the, let's say, the telos of what you're going for when you're trying okay. to be a, a Respublica is we would, with false friends, say something like, leisure with dignity, but that's not quite right, right? So, yeah, because that gives us the idea of like, you can just- Sear sucker. Yeah, lounge, yeah, lounge, Southern, you know, sort of antebellum Southern gentlemen who don't have to work and can do whatever they want, but they're very proud of, you know, being from Virginia or wherever. Exactly. Uh, Which is not really what Cicero wants, right? As a philosopher, he right. that like living a good life is something with virtuous life in response to physical reality is right. somehow important. But of course, the virtuous life must be spent in politics, right? Separate them out from the Epicureans, where Epicureans are like, don't get into politics because it'll hurt you, versus Cicero who's like, that's kind of the only way to express the good life is to be, is to apply it. 
somewhere. And so this, this idea of otium, yeah, it's leisure. Sure. I mean, he was after that when he retired, he's like, yeah, finally, I've got my otium, but it's more, it's the freedom from compulsion. Mm -hmm. So you might have to get up and go to work. You might be crippled by debt. You might say everything, but nobody's forcing you to do anything. By you say nobody's forced, you mean physically throwing you into jail or? Correct. Yes. There's no, it's, it's this idea, like this sort of, you know, the, the police coming to your house and, and the secret police coming to your house and dragging you in the middle of the night. You don't live under that fear of compulsion or there's nobody so, physically forcing you to do things. There's nobody with a sword to your throat. Well, so uh, what does this sort of think of somebody who has a mortgage, let's say, and can't pay it? Is that person well, possessed of otium? Well, I think... It could be because weirdly, and this is Deo Ficchi's one, I think the primary goal of government is to protect private property. So if you've got a mortgage, well, the state should, okay, you, you've made a bad business deal, but it's yours. You know, somebody owns this and we have to protect it. So if it's a bad mortgage, that doesn't protect property. If it's a, if it's a great mortgage, you know, but you made that choice. Let me, I think Nobody I have the wrong question. You to do it. I think that's the wrong question. I mean, if not the person who legally owns the mortgage, like a bank, okay. I mean, if you are a person who lives where you do because you owe someone else, mm -hmm. are you in it? Can you be in a state of OTM? Because you know you could get kicked out if you can't pay them oh, at some point, right? That's a fantastic question. And the question uh, of debt, of course, at the level of the state is worry also in, in the first century. This is one of the reasons why, if you conquer lands and steal their gold, you're suddenly hugely important because oh, right. we don't have any debt anymore. We just extracted wealth from somewhere else. Sure. It's also one of the major arguments from famously from Lenin, right, against capitalism, international capitalism, that inevitably it leads to sucking the wealth out of somewhere else, right? right. Because it has to produce a, gen a difference between people who actually are free, or you might say, you know, OTOs punning, mm -hmm. and people who are not, which are any worker. Mm -hmm. I think it comes, I think, I think what Cicero might look at that and say is, so this idea of the OTM that you have is you are free to do bad things for yourself. You are free to get yourself into bad debt. You're free to do dumb things. It's that your state is going, your state provides you the opportunity to do this. So you want to make bad choices, knock yourself out. But civil discord, you're not going to be conscripted to fight for, you know, to get involved in the squabbles of other people. Like you're kind of left yeah. alone to do that which you do as a member of this society. Right. Okay. So it's a very political idea. It's, in other words, it doesn't seem to be very like economic or financial. So I'm thinking of situations where right. in order to produce freedom within a state, someone like a Solon will forgive debts or such as like mm -hmm. the Hebrew Jubilee saying that you can't really have a good society if people are not technically being thrown into sure. prison all the time, but somehow have this pressure from the outside that blocks them from what Cicero might call OTM. This was not worried right. about that. It's like, fine, that's fine. That's your choice. Yeah. Um, and, you know, of course, the emperors did this, right? There's those beautiful friezes in, in the forum of Trajan burning all the dead books when he became emperor, you know, and because it's a great way to start afresh every 10 years or whatever. <laughs> also, this is when I learned this stuff in, in like in grad school, that was presented to me somewhat cynically, maybe mm -hmm. by like, I don't know, like by, by Marxist sort of historians as like, this is a way to, or anti-Marxist, this is a way to gather support from the people, right? To, to sort of a pocket. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So maybe it's that, but I, I also, now that I'm getting older and I'm thinking a little bit like, well, but also not having debt is a huge deal and having a ton of debt that you can't take yourself out is like kind of ruins your life, right? Mm -hmm. So it's also actually very beneficial to people whose debt was already given, like they actually really do owe him at this point for something like OTM that they didn't have before if he forgave their debts? Or I, yeah, I don't know, what do you think? Yeah. Uh, well, that certainly does, does 
I, that sort of starts playing into the idea of that, again, those false friends ideas of OTM is freedom. Uh, yeah. It does release you from burden. But again, free enterprise being, I, I think, kind of important to how the, how the Roman state works. That, Explain free enterprise here? Well, this, well, I suppose free enterprise is a bad term, but the, the rights of people to engage in, in transactions, buying and selling goods, debt, surplus, you know, these kind of things, how, whatever sort of ism you want to stick on it, I guess is okay because that that will that can function in a society free from external oppression so whatever force it is that's external to you that forces you to do things is the opposite of ot right and i can see a little bit of that in the concept of externality now it's a little bit of stoicism coming in here maybe like mm -hmm. that is that uh, for cicero i think one of the stoic goals of your own life is lessen the things that are external to you, increase the scope yeah. of this is the oikiosis concept, increase the scope of things that are somehow yours, right? Uh, yeah, I'd agree with that, yeah. Yeah, is that, and so let me push against this a little bit. Sure. One of the standard kind of objections to the sort of oikiotic justification of private property is mm -hmm. things that are, are yours are partly yours because you're strong enough to keep them or your friend group, your faction is strong enough to keep them. And things that are <laughs> right. not yours are things that are not. And one of the arguments in favor of let's say the Bill of Rights, is that there are certain things that must be yours no matter how strong you are, which is to mm -hmm. say that there must be some absolute, so let's say a, a, not a Roman idea, but an absolute state that protects X, Y, and Z that make them yours right. without which you are a slave or without which you do not have OTM, certainly. Mm -hmm. right? The Federalist Papers notoriously are not totally sure about this idea, right? Or the Federalists are not sure about the city of the Bill of Rights. And this is a sort of, I, I learned this as a technical question is like, well, if you enumerate them, then that kind of implies that they're, the rest of ones are not enumerated, but right. it, this like, so, and the idea of rights, of course, is not directly an ancient idea, but there certainly is an idea. And Cicero talks about this, I think in, in I think in De Fikis, about how there are like, just what it is to be a member of society in some sense, right? Some fundamental limitation mm -hmm. on your relation to others that should can't be broken by restrictions on that, so. Right, yeah, you're a member of kind of this, the human oikos, right, at, 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 yes. at this kind of level. And then everything else peters down from that. You know, this idea of like, oh, well, are you slave or free? Okay, well, yes. if you're free, are you Roman or not Roman? Like there's all these different communities you belong to and kind of a stepping stone down from human, right? This, this universal community that you live in. And this is you know, during the Scipio, book six, where Scipio gets to go up and actually see this community and how frail and fragile it is. So I better do my part, you mm -hmm. know, to, to ensure that this, that this continues. And of course, to um, do that, he has to see the community from the outside. Exactly. He has, yes. He gets the blinders, little horse blinders. And I think that's one of the problems with, with this kind of leadership model that Cicero has is that if you're just, if you're just focused on OTM Cumbignitate, that's a, that's a really fragile, precarious goal because it, it, it there's so many things that can crush it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And if you're not on the lookout for these, these cracks in the veneer or these, or these, the, the rising tide of whatever ism that is going with the people who now may get a leader, a strong leader out of it, that you do lose that, pers that great perspective of, the, of, of the, the human community. So, and I mean, Cicero obviously doesn't care about anybody who's not Roman, right? He's obviously looking at, at a very small group of the world, but for him, that is his world. Right, it's uh, not his job too, I, I don't believe Yeah, him. he doesn't need yeah. to, he doesn't care. And I think even he narrows it down even more that like, well, if we take care of our, you know, 600 senators or the, 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 the group of elites, if we have OTM to transact our Roman business the way 
we see fit because the people, it'll trickle down to mm-hmm. OTM for the people. The people seem to be, they seem to have two goals is to continue the status quo and also to rebel. That seems to be like the big fear is that you could motivate the people and that's really, really dangerous. Of course, not using the word popularis right, or, or you know, the popularis because that's adds in a whole bunch of, of modern terminology, you know, populism, things like More that. More false friends, just like optimistic. Exactly. False friend, optimist, a social class, but also the best, right? Yeah, and then if he switches between optimist and bony, right? There's there's kind of a today's bony, tomorrow's optimist, you know? Right. Uh, but with, again, with all that same goal though, and that's what he, and then the story like Procestio is that you're gonna have factions. There's gonna be little groups popping up all over the place. You're gonna have them, but the question is how do you navigate them in order to get to this point? And, and the word navigate, I, I like using the word navigate for some reason, that's what he uses in, in De Republica, right? Is the gubernator, this mm-hmm. helmsman who is, he can't make the storm go away, but his knowledge can help you get through it. And there'll be another one eventually, right? I mean, there's going to be storms. It's just your job to get through the storm with as many people on your ship still alive and the ship in the best shape as possible. Yep. We can rebuild it afterwards. Right. Yeah, we can rebuild it later. We so- have the technology. So, so we talked about OTM a little bit, but you talked, we didn't talk about Dignitate, but the mm-hmm. suspicion that I have on that word is that it sounds more kind of elitist than Absolutely. OTM because of the relation of Dignitate to something like social class. So let me ask yeah. in a different way instead of just about the word directly. Would Caesar, Julius Caesar, do you think, would he say the goal of the state or of leadership or of powerful people, their telos is OTM Krug Dignitate or... Is that, to me, that sounds like something he would absolutely never say. It sounds like it would be absurd for Caesar right. to say, but I, I don't know. I think Caesar would say that the goal, that the goal of leadership is dignitas cum dignitate. You know, is this, this, this idea that, that I am nothing without my, my public persona. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and so I'm going to invade Italy because they just won't let me stand for the consulship. And to stand down makes me look less than Poppy. So he is, yeah, OTM, I don't think, because he certainly used compulsion. Um, this idea of clementia is is the antithesis of freedom. If if I can, you can't be free if you need if I am in a position to grant you your life. All right. So let me ask about that. That's a good one because yeah, I was going to bring up like the idea of loyalty, which is something mm-hmm. seems to be something that personal loyalty that a, a military commander has that Caesar certainly acts like in his own writings about himself as a military commander is essential to his leadership of his army, and therefore also possibly to his leadership of the republic. Mm-hmm. I have a paper that I'm working on, which I'm arguing that the way that he leads in the army, specifically mm-hmm. the combination of Clementia and Caleritas speed, mm-hmm. because it requires the army to really buy in, is the sure. kind of leadership that is non-tyrannical, right? Like you can't make people yeah. march super fast by whipping them. They have to actually put a lot of energy into it. So they're, they're self-motivated. Yeah. That sounds like a military commander kind of style, like we're buddies and Caesar, according to like Suetonius, did really buddy with his his guys, right? Like the, he would like sleep on the floor, you know, right. in the cold and all that stuff that you wouldn't think a Roman senator of the Ciceronian kind of like theoretician, practical, but also practical on the ground, but in Rome would do mm-hmm. as opposed to, I make myself known for being a, a warrior king effectively. Sure, which you look at like Sulla, right? He's, I mean, the warrior king, right? He does, yeah. you know. But yeah, I mean, there's that great, there's that great passage in the in the in the Gallic Wars. It's a four four twenty five, I think, where he's invading Britain, and that one random unnamed guy from the from the thirteenth legion grabs the. Nobody wants to get off the boats because there's all these Gauls, and it's like, what is it? We're doing an amphibious landing. What is this? And he grabs eagles, like, like buck up, little campers. I'm gonna, and he says, I'm gonna do my duty for my republic and my general. 
and he leaps off the boat with the eagle, which presumably means he also doesn't have a shield. So like I'm unarmed, and, you know, but he specifically mentions, I'm going to do this for my general. Yeah. I don't think we know what happened to him. I can't remember if it tells us if he got cut down immediately know, but... by some arrow. Yeah. <laughs> but but that, yeah, that's that kind of that, that charismatic leadership that Caesar brought to the table that I think actually shows partially the limitation of Cicero's idea, right? Is that leader, that loyalty is, is fluid. Mm-hmm because you know the changing alliances and you're going to join up with whoever and, and this is good for whomever but caesar it's almost a more of a monolithic type of leadership right that it's like we are building a dare we say faction that is built not on a a sort of common general this is good for us but this is good for you and i trust you Yes, right. So there's the big notion that you've got in the in that Caesar gets he gets this kind of trust that uh, Cicero doesn't it doesn't seem to be a part of Cicero's like leadership world somehow. You form factions, mm-hmm. you form groups, you form alliances for the sake of local goods, which mm-hmm. should be aligned by the skilled optimates for the sake of the global good of the whole Respublica. But right. this pure world loyalty and trust is not, I, I think, again, you know better than I do, is not really part of Cicero's leadership picture as it is central to Caesar's. Right. And I think that's where, that's part of why Cicero, you know, failed so badly against Octavian is that Octavian adopts this, this personal charismatic devotional model that Caesar had, which makes perfect sense because he could be able to draw on a couple of legions for this, where Cicero trusted Octavian, but he trusted Octavian to understand the political games that had always been played and that we're going to make some transactions here and there. And right. So in other words, to make good judgments, not he just trusted him full stop. Right. Yeah, correct. Yeah, he. I think he's pretty clear he didn't trust Octavian farther than he could throw him. But he trusted that Octavian was smart enough to know what was going on. Whereas Caesar's, that he was a partner in the political game, because of course, he, you know, he comes in and is like, by the way, guys, you know, I can help you out here at the Senate. Whereas Caesar's guys and Caesar himself are very much, yep. I trust what you, I know, out of my, it's out of my range. I trust you, Caesar. I will That's die it. for you, Caesar. Yeah, literally die, and, yeah. You want me to go do what? Okay, fine. I go do it. So, which is different than an idea of thinking about what's the best thing for me. What's the, is it? What's good for me? Good for my buddy? Is it good for Caesar? Is it good for my family back home? Exactly. That's a yeah. Kind of model. And that that difference there is something that I think I'm going to quickly transition to the American mm-hmm. problem because one of the by way of this by way of that image of the the random legionary jumping out with the standard mm-hmm. the eagle standard and saying for caesar and for republic or because <laughs> you know, one of the common modern critiques of liberalism that the economic critique with liberalism in the end of history and last man is that liberalism for all of its successes and it is of course the most perfect political idea in, in the Fukuyama picture this is this is for what this is what he's writing right right after the soviet union falls or right when it's falling mm-hmm. he says everybody wants to be a liberal democracy because freedom is the best and representation is great and all of that. But the one thing that he says it's missing, and he goes through a Hegelian argument, is it's missing what the Greeks call thumos, this part of your soul that just loves excellence, the part that belongs to the warrior, not to the politician, not to the citizen, not to the producer, but the warrior, that belongs to the athlete, and that is okay with dying for something else, with something bigger than you. Mm-hmm. And he says liberal democracy as such does not satisfy this. And so he, he already leaves open an area for saying like maybe this is one of the areas, one of the reasons why liberal democracies end up going to war with non-democracies a lot more than you think they would if they were acting in their rational self-interest. It's because there's a part of the soul that the warrior king satisfies that a Cicero type does not satisfy maybe, or that liberal democracy itself does not satisfy. Is that right? Or Uh, as a Roman soldier yourself? Well, I think, yeah. And I think even the structure of, of the Republic, 
you might be, I, yeah, I mean, I hadn't thought of it quite in that terms, but I think you might be onto something in terms of just the, how, I mean, the structure of the Republic is you can't, that has to be satisfied somewhere and that's satisfied by holding high office and then going out to your province. Right. And even Cicero did this, right? Cicero goes and attacks the tribes on Matamanus, Matamanus who are, who are, I mean, they're, they're living in tents and he marches in there with two legions, right? And they just wipe them out, killed however many thousands of them. But he needed to do that because that was the only outlet for it. And I don't, he didn't believe in it. He thought it was kind of dumb, but he needed it in order to play on par with everybody else to level the playing field. And was he willing to die for the province of Sil No, he just wanted to get back home to again, engage in this idea of directing what he knew. It, but yeah, with Caesar, like they're willing to die for this guy. I mean, he didn't pay them for what, you know, eight years. Right, and for uh, Britain, like they don't care about Britain. They've never, yeah. they have no idea what this place even is. Right. Yeah, it's like there be dragons, right, written on top of the map, and it's like we're going to go there. But yeah, it, that is, and I think that I hadn't quite thought of it the way you'd explained it, but this—that's not really in, inherent in I think what Cicero felt the Republic was or how the Republic should function. Right, it doesn't seem because to be that's dangerous. dangerous. Yes, it's outside <laughs> it's of any engineering. Dangerous. Yeah, he wants yeah. to socially engineer what's designed a nice system, a perfect system, and his praise of the Roman right. Republic is there have been many generations that have designed the system more perfectly than any one mind could have conceived it. It's very like intellectual yes. sort of engineering. Yeah, he's very clear on that in the Republic too, that this is, a, this is not something that some guy sat down and wrote, yeah. uh, right? Which is where America becomes kind of, you, it becomes unique, right? We wrote down our constitution instead of letting it develop yep. sort of organically and all the problems that that entails as opposed to having this sort of unwritten code. We did, but then on the other hand, when you do look at something beyond the, the code itself, let's say the constitution, the bill of rights and all of that, and then you look at the thoughts behind it, such as the Federalist Papers, the Constitutional Conventional Debates and all of that. It does look like people who tried to design the perfect state, um, people try to be like the new like Congress, the new Soldier of America, right. have thought through a lot of these problems, right? And, and one of them that, again, is relevant to this particular conversation, the one in the Federalist 10 that you mentioned is, is this problem of how to scale, which we talked a little bit about is Cicero right. can't do that. He thinks it's a problem you have to have mostly intelligence coming from above and approval mm -hmm. maybe from below, but intelligence from above. It's not totally clear to me uh, among the Federalists or particularly Federalist 10, where they think like what the role of the people is besides not causing problems. Right. So, right. so it came a little bit about like how the Federalists are trying to solve this problem of the few versus the many and also the knowledgeable versus the ignorant. And, uh, yeah, I, I believe Madison mentions actually in there the problem of republics ancient and modern. So he's clearly thinking about which two, you know, Greece, you know, Athens, the radical democracy, and then, and then the Roman Republic. But it's, it's about, I think, it, it almost, I think maybe what Cicero was talking about, giving them just enough power, it's about limiting opportunities for the people to cause problems. And so that's how you, and that's what he's right, you can, you can get rid of factions if you just, you know, enslave everybody, which that'll stop that. You can also get rid of, make everybody think the same thing, which, you know, that ain't going to work. So now we have to just limit it. And the way I think looking, if we want to kind of, and I don't know, and this is something that came up as I was, I was thinking about our talk today was, did Madison read Procestio? Hmm. You know, I don't know. I don't so know. You're drawing that parallel. In other words, it's not something that you necessarily. Yeah. Know. Looking at, at what the, why do you need to limit factions? Because it's bad for the people. It's bad for the, the people in scare quotes, the bad for the race, the Republic. What is it that the, and so you're limiting the power of the people to preserve the Republic. What's the Republic? Four, it's to protect the, it's to provide for the national defense, which Cicero mentions in Procestio. It's to provide for the free exchange of goods, the treasury. Uh, it's to provide law. 
It's to engage in foreign policy. It's to do all the things that the, that the federal government is supposed to do for us in a way that the people, even, even though we have elections, it's filtering it again. It's almost like they've taken the Republican and then added that third step. So the people get to vote for people who vote for other people. So mm-hmm. if you think of like Federalist 68 with the Electoral College, that that's how we're going to filter. We're going to create a third step mm-hmm. between the top branch and the people. We're going to have people vote for people to vote for people. Right, right. And then even the layers in between may be conceived as entities that are not individuals, but are other, right. but that are themselves legal fiction, let's say, or, or states, right? A new notion that we don't have mm-hmm. in the ancient world. But even the Electoral College kind of, and this is one of the issues today, right, is that are they a rubber stamp body or can they actually do what Hamilton is saying in 68 is that they should really be people who are best, you choose the best people to think about who should be the person you vote for. Mm -hmm. And he's okay with the Electoral College disagreeing with the popular vote? I would think so. And 68 is not something I know quite as well as 10. But there is a big deal of, if I remember correctly, there's a big deal made about independence of the executive from the will of the people, right? right? Uh, which you had in the Republic, right? We're going to elect these senators who then have absolutely no obligation to do anything for anybody else except themselves. Because they're lifetime. Because they're lifetime appointments and there's no representative government. It's not like you're picking this tribe from the Aventine, you know, yep. this senator from the Aventine, this senator from this. It's just you a just smart elect, old guy. Yeah. You elect the are 10 tribunes and you like the how many priders you have and then they're good but you should be uh, creating obstacles for intrigue corruption and and creating these different layers separates that out i think yeah that's a technical solution sort of an engineering solution again in the ciceronian line sure. not also the one not one of these sort of like what about the people who want to die for this question that's, even though america's yeah. founding is very romantic as well right and even is taken by some to inspire the sturm und drang german literary movement that is the beginning <laughs> of romanticism because america is like what it did make up a new idea out of nowhere right. to solve the problem of the respublica somehow because these great yeah. god geniuses devised it in their brilliant heads or something so yeah and it, it you know while cicero's cicero creates this he, he makes no bones about the fact in the romans in their general that our, our founders were kind of jerks right? They did horrible things. I mean, Romulus well, killed his brother. Yeah. He killed his brother. And it's like, you know, we need all the criminals and, and thieves and everybody else just hey, come live with us. Right. Yeah. Horace talks about this, right? He talks about the, you know, yeah. Rom, you know, Rom, it's with the Romulus a cesspool and all this other stuff. And fratricide is built into the last century as it was built into Rome from its founding. Right. right. Yeah. And so now, but you know, we, is that something only for the elites to worry about? Is it something that the people care about or the people, you know, the people are, the people are sort of looking down, are our elites supposed to be looking up at the bigger picture? We'd look down at, you know, food on the table, roof over our head, this kind of stuff. And for Cicero, yeah, good. Keep your focus there. Keep your focus there. We'll take care of it. Yeah. Kind of a, kind of a little, a bit of a lazy, laissez-faire attitude towards the needs of the individual. But that's what the state is for, is to prevent transience of the state, to, to promote permanence of the idea of whatever it is your state is. Right, right, which is a little bit weaker than, let's say, the, the platonic image that came to mind when you said looking up mm-hmm. right, versus looking down. Even right. Cicero is aware of, I'm very interested in, in platonic perspective, which we can't get into, but which is, sure. uh, it would be interesting to think about that as a, a, in terms of difference between, I don't know, you know platonic attitude, but Roman model mm-hmm. and American founding fathers thought, right? As opposed yeah. to the Ceronian Republic model of this evolution organic over time and all of that. 
Yeah, and, and of course, if they're, you know, the founding fathers go by virtue of piling on on Cicero, right, are getting Plato because Plato was, you know, my god Plato, as Cicero called him, right? He loved Plato, and so they're getting Plato distilled through Cicero, but yeah. he's still an omnipresent, if not named, influence on whatever it is that they're doing when they're sitting down to create a more perfect republic. All right, well, we are out of time. Sorry ah. to take up too much time, but um, maybe sometime okay. we can also talk about, I, I think it would be interesting to continue to talk about like Cicero, the philosopher king, and this mm. ideal of not just how to avoid problems, but what brings about otium cum dignitate, let's say, because the Fed Federalist 10 and this processio passage we looked at were mostly negative, how to avoid the problem of factions. Correct. But leaders, even in Rome, even in Rome, Roman philosophy, but certainly in Greek <laughs> idealistic philosophy, they're not only trying to stop problems, they're also trying to bring about some other positive good, where is that coming from? What is that? Cicero, very interesting yeah. question himself, right? In the Ithacus and in actually, his, you know, lots of his writings that are not specifically political, quote unquote, but even- Oh yeah, uh, everything in 44, I mean, De, De Machidia, you know, on old age, on friendship, on duties. Yeah, those, that, that, that triple seems to be that hit a turn from that, I like how you put that. I really like that turn of phrase that they're exceedingly negative, but there's got to be a positive to that, right? You see, if you're thinking of negative, if you only think in terms of negative, that means you have considered the positive and have chosen the negative to be the more persuasive. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting topic as well, that idea. Uh, and Cicero has this in mind and in the Middle Ages, that's what he's mostly known for. Right? Mm -hmm. It's like, what is the good is what Cicero right. teaches us on Damachidia, for example, so. Yeah, and yeah. even, even the Dere Publica is very positive on all levels, on the people and the aristocracy. It's, it's a much more positive view of the Republic and working together and yeah. a, a commonwealth if you yep. break the two parts and then put them back together, that's what he's after in the Dear Public, as opposed to practical politics, as we see in the process deal. Yeah, uh, which is the not bad. Right? Instead yeah, of exactly. Good. Yeah, yeah. So maybe we can talk about that another time. So thanks for me. Yeah, I'd love to. That'd be great. Yeah, that was fun. Um, th All right. Thank you so much, John. This was great. You too. Thanks. In addition to this week's guest, the Leading Thinkers podcast would like to thank Eric Shimalonis, Aisha Champagne, and Malaron Hodge. For more information, please visit Kalyan.org. That's K-A-L-L-I-O-N.org. Thanks for listening.